Straight Up No Chaser podcast, episode number three, The Problem and the Solution. We've already talked about this being a spiritual malady, but very few people can recognize that or identify with it. However, we do identify very much with the problem on many different levels. For alcoholics, we have an allergy to alcohol that manifests in the phenomenon of craving. Once we take a drink, we have an intense desire to have another drink. And after we have that drink, we have an intense desire to have another drink. No matter how much we drink, we have an intense desire to have another drink. Now, before I came to AA, I identified that as a superpower I had. I could outdrink everyone. I didn't understand why people couldn't drink with me. How come they couldn't keep up with me? So I assumed I was a special breed of person who was genetically engineered to process great quantities of alcohol. I actually couldn't have been more accurate. That is exactly what is wrong with my body. Uh, once I that phenomenon of craving hit, it was off to the races. I never was a social drinker. I, I drank to get drunk. That was the only purpose I saw for drinking because every time I drank, I got drunk. My first drink was when I was eight years old. I was a kid. You know, me and my brothers, we took uh, beer down in the basement. And we we thought it was nasty pop, you know, what, what the adults drank. And we shook it up and sprayed it on each other, shotgunned it down and drank it. And it dawned on us that, you know, we were in trouble because of what we had done. And it would be easy to identify who the culprits were because we smelled like beer. So we decided to go down to the creek, play in the creek, get that creek smell on us. And um, that would be our excuse. We were playing in the creek. And so we start heading that way. And as my brothers got closer and closer to the woods, I started walking slower and slower and slower. And as soon as they turned down into the woods, I ran back to get some more of that nasty pop. So like every other alcoholic, I wasn't drinking for the taste. We can pretty it up in any flavor we want. But the reality is, after that first drink, we're drinking to satisfy a craving beyond our control. And that was evident to me at age eight, that I had to have more of that. So whereas other people look at us and think we drink too much, our experience is, I can't seem to drink enough. One drink of alcohol and I get thirsty. Now, I've been sober for 28 years, and I understand I still have that problem. That was never my problem. That was a condition, an abnormal reaction, an allergy. There are people allergic to all types of substances, strawberries, peanuts, penicillin, aspirin, bee stings. Uh, they have a simple solution to that. They stay away from the allergen. Yet we're drawn back to that allergen like a moth to a flame. And that is what the real problem is. The mental obsession. 
After 28 years, I am still allergic to alcohol. It is still an allergen to me, but I can react sanely and normal to that because I no longer operate with a mental obsession that tells me I am going to be able to control my drinking once I start if I only do blank. It's going to be different this time if I only do blank. You can fill in blank with whatever you want. It doesn't have to make sense to anyone else so long as it makes sense to the alcoholic. And then we're off on another alcoholic spree and the terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair that follows. So this is the real problem of the alcoholic. The problem centers in the mind, not in the body. We do have an abnormal uh, body, but our mind is as abnormal as well. And no one likes to hear that. Especially alcoholics of the prideful variety. We, we take great pride in our thinking prowess. We're intellectually superior to most, yet we don't know how to use it properly because we're strangely insane when it comes to alcohol. We may be able to function at a high level in other areas of our life until alcohol totally takes that away from us. But where it comes to alcohol, we can't operate with common sense and reason. In spite of all the experiences we have that shows us drinking is a very bad idea, we have a mind that tells us at certain times it's a great idea. That's at certain times. Not all the time. This is why we can quit for periods of time. We can come to meetings and quit drinking for a period of time. But a certain time shows up and we have no effective mental defense against the first drink. The pain, the suffering, the humiliation that brought us into the rooms of recovery that, that made us want to stop drinking is of absolutely no use when it comes to this mental obsession. In spite of our strongest desire to not take a drink, our mind succumbs to the mental obsession and we drink as though the cocktails were ginger ale. So Bill Apley describes this in the big book, and it's told in Jim's story, it's told in Fred's story, and Bill tells it in his own story. In Jim's story, he said that he went to a place to have something to eat, and then the thought crossed his mind that were he to mix alcohol with milk, it could not harm him on a full stomach. Now, that makes absolutely no sense to anybody listening to this. However, in Jim's head, that made perfectly good sense. And after he took that drink, the phenomenon of craving kicked in, and it was back to the asylum once more. And then we have Fred, and this is the really baffling story for the alcoholic. This is what we don't understand. In recovery today, they will tell you, you can't get struck drunk. Yet Fred talks about how he got struck drunk that strange middle blank spot where he gave no thought to the consequences of drinking whatsoever. He just thought a cocktail with dinner would be great. That was all. Jim resisted a little bit. He said, well, you know, I don't know if this is a good idea, but that obsession persisted and said, hey, but you're taking the alcohol on a full stomach with milk. So he justified, rationalized, and minimized his drinking. Fred, he thought a couple of cocktails with dinner would be fine. 
Boom, he had it. No thought whatsoever. He had six months of sobriety. Now, Jim had suffered great devastation from his drinking. He lost his business, uh, his family, uh, great physical and mental suffering. Fred was what we would call today a high-bottom alcoholic. He still had his job. He was functioning very well. His, his family loved and adored him. Uh, the outside damage was almost non-existent. However, he had a mental obsession that drove him to drink, and it led to an alcoholic spree that convinced him that his own personal character, his high morals, would not keep him from taking the drink. And then he surrendered to AA. So he talked about the strange mental blank spot. I myself have experienced that in times where, for whatever reason, some catastrophe befell me and I was not going to drink. I summoned all my willpower. I used great self-knowledge, reason, common sense. I had every reason not to drink. And then I'm in the middle of a drunk and I don't remember when I started to drink. It, it, it's sort of like my car got thirsty and, and on autopilot drove to the liquor store and I went in and just started. I had another friend who experienced the very same thing. She was on her way to uh, her home group to pick up her five-year token from her sponsor. It was her sobriety anniversary. Instead, her car went to the liquor store and she wondered, why am I at this liquor store? That was her last conscious thought. The next conscious thought was, why are these policemen chasing me? She went on a seven-day bender. Don't know what law she broke, but the police thought they were serious enough that five of them were chasing her down the highway in a high-speed chase. Now, she didn't work the steps. She only stopped drinking. She thought that uh, the pain, the suffering, humiliation would be enough to keep her sober. That her strong desire was enough to keep her sober. Her, her willpower was enough to keep her sober. But if you're an alcoholic of the hopeless variety that the big book describes, those things are human power and they are of absolutely no use against this. No human power can relieve us of our alcoholism because no human power can touch the mental obsession that rests in our subconscious mind. We don't have control over that. So we may have a conscious desire to not drink, but when that obsession springs up from our subconscious for whatever reason it is, it's game over, we drink. We may negotiate with it for a while, but once you start negotiating, you've lost the battle. At some point, you will drink again. And that is what it means to be powerless. We not only have lost control over how much we drink once we start to drink, we have lost the power of choice over whether we will drink or not under our own power. So that is what it means to be powerlessness, be powerless. I have friends who say, um, I choose not to use. Well, that's power. If you've got the power of choice, you're not powerless. Strangely enough, many of them went on out to use, even though they had a desire to not use. They had a desire to not drink. I have friends who said, I don't drink under any and all conditions. 
and they drink. If you're an alcoholic, you will drink under any and all conditions, even when your mind and your heart doesn't want to drink. So that's what it means to be powerless. And if powerlessness is the problem, then obviously power is the solution. Where do we find that power? It is not in the fellowship. Sobriety on the fellowship is untreated alcoholism because we have a treatment that's been proven to work for over 80 years and has, has provided sobriety recovery for millions of alcoholics. It has a success rate of 75, 85, 95% proven. The Cleveland AAs, they sobered up 400 drunks with only 16 relapses in one year. Unheard of today. And part of that is because they did not have meetings to go to. They only had the steps to work. Another telling example of uh, uh, the power of the program over the power of the fellowship, uh, the World War II and al alcoholics going overseas to fight in World War II. They did not have meetings. They lost contact with their sponsors. They only had the program to rely upon. And yet there were far fewer relapses amongst them than alcoholics who were stateside and home with the comforts of, lit, uh, 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 of civilization. So that's the power of the program. But we, we have that confused today. You hear people say all the time, I came to the program. No, you came to the fellowship until you open up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and turn to page 60 to 88 and follow those directions, you don't know what the program is and you have not come to the program. Once you follow the clear-cut, precise, exact directions provided on those pages, 60 to 88, you have come to the program. So it tells us if you want what we have and you are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. And yet people in the rooms all the time say, I'm willing to go to any lengths. Reality is, straight up no chaser, until you take the steps, until you adopt it as a way of life, you are not willing to go to any lengths. You have made a decision to live life on your terms. And that always results in a drink. Life on our terms results in a drink. Life on life's terms results in a drink. Life on God's terms presents permanent recovery. That's what the founders meant and how it works when they said, if you want what we have. They had permanent recovery. Dr. Bob put it best. He was 12-stepping a guy who had been sober for five years and uh, fell off the wagon, so to speak. And he asked Dr. Bob, who had six months at the time, how long do you expect to stay sober? Dr. Bob's response was, so long as I am thinking the way I'm thinking today, so long as I am doing the things I am doing today, it is not likely I'll pick up a drink the rest of my life. You know what? He didn't pick up a drink the rest of his life. He completely gave himself to the simple program. Now, we all know what it feels like to completely give ourselves to something. We completely gave ourselves to alcohol. 
That is how you get into AA. Half measures won't get you here. Controlled drinking, if you can master that, you're not going to spend your time hanging around with a bunch of losers like us. So if you have completely given yourself to alcohol, you know you let nothing come between you and a drink. That's the hopeless alcoholic that the big book and AA was meant for. So completely means 100% effort, 100% of the time, meaning the rest of your life. We have a way of life that gets infinitely more wonderful as time passes if we practice these principles in all of our affairs. So that is what is meant by permanent recovery. Of the first 100 alcoholics, 67 died sober. They got sober, never drank again. Bill often said the success rate of Alcoholics Anonymous program was 67%. Why? Because he knew each one of those 67 alcoholics. And he knew they had permanent recovery because they stopped drinking, they worked within the parameters of the steps, and they never drank again. So that is what he was referring to, the program. Dr. Bob said it best, it never fails if you go about it with half the zeal you went about getting a drink. So there has to be some zeal to your recovery. You have to want this more than anything else in the world. As we say, whatever you put in front of your recovery, you're guaranteed to lose. So 90% won't get it, 95% won't get it, 99.9% won't get it, 100% completely give yourself to this simple program. Now, as the old timers told me, simple, 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 hard, hard, hard. The way the big book puts it, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others. We had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. So right there is telling you the role of the program and the role of the fellowship. You know, the program requires self-searching, the level of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings. And the fellowship acts as evidence that if we do this, we will find much of heaven. One of my spiritual uh, teachers often said, exiting hell is a heavenly experience. And I'm here to tell you, yes, that is absolutely true. To be released from the pits of alcoholic hell is a heavenly experience. Uh, an old timer once told me, he said, God did not open the gates of heaven and let you in. He opened the gates of hell and let you out. And he dropped the 12 step ladder down there that you could ascend out of hell and, and find much of heaven here on earth. So this is some lost knowledge. Uh, it's not really lost. It's just not adhered to. They say if you want to hide something from an alcoholic, put it in the big book. The program is in the big book. 
Alcoholics don't look there for it. They get enamored with the fellowship, and that is the easier, easier, softer way that always leads to relapse. That's why we say sobriety on the fellowship alone is untreated alcoholism. However, the program has been proven produced successful results for over 80 years in millions of cases, and as Dr. Bob said, it never fails. That is straight up no chaser. Uh, look forward to the next podcast. We'll go a little bit into the spirituality of AA and how is it that an agnostic or an atheist can grasp hold of this program. I've had plenty of experience sponsoring atheists. I've had plenty of experience sponsoring agnostic and I've had plenty of experience sponsoring religious people. My preference is atheists because they are a blank slate. They have no clue. So until next time, straight up no chaser. Hardcore truths about recovery.